You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. start our time together this morning actually by sharing some art with you guys uh, that I think is really beautiful and compelling. It's called shadow art. Uh, if you guys have heard of it, uh, many it's, it's a pretty uh, niche mode of artistic expression, but I think it, it has some really powerful messages in it. So I'm going to have Lauren throw up uh, the first image here, and I'm going to ask you guys, if you can see the screen, what you see up there. What do you guys see? Trash. Bunch of garbage. What else? What specific parts of trash? Yes, some bullet holes, right? So trash that has been shot through by a BB gun or bullet holes or the like. Coke cans. Yeah, yeah, we've got some beer cans maybe, some Coke cans. All sorts of cans, right? If you looked at that pile of stuff, you'd think, and that's useless, right? A pile of trash. Uh, But look what happens when a spotlight gets shined through it. It does look like a city, and if you shine light through it, all of a sudden it's this beautiful image of the New York skyline with the Twin Towers in there as well. Uh, this, was, this art was released just after 9-11 as kind of a memorial uh, for bringing life out of the ashes. Uh, yeah, I think I have one more on there. Lauren, give us the next image. What do you guys see here? Scraps, right? Some wood, maybe some metal in there. Uh, it doesn't seem to have much of a pattern to it. Zip ties, yeah, some things holding together, some little like pieces of metal. Uh, Lauren, go ahead and give us the next image. You shine a light through it, and that is a human. This beautiful, beautiful image, right? From a piece of garbage comes something really, really powerful. The stuff that you were going to throw away actually becomes transformed into something beautiful, something really valuable that you want to keep around. And today, uh, we're in the middle of a couple sermon series here at Midtown. We just finished up uh, talking about the story of Abraham and Sarah. We're going to start on a New Testament letter next week with the letter of Romans uh, that follows up on that story of Abraham. And in between, I wanted to uh, return to some of Jesus' most famous words. These come from his Sermon on the Mount, which is the largest collection of Jesus' teachings that we have together in the Bible. Uh, And I use this art as an example because in Jesus' words today, he's informing us that the kingdom of heaven does something similar to shadow art. It gives primary significance. It gives value, eternal worth, to things that we looked at previously and said, those aren't valuable. That's not worthwhile. Uh, The kingdom of heaven transforms those sorts of things. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn in it with me uh, to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to have the words up on the screen for you to follow along as well. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, if you'd like to to flip there. Uh, I'm going to be reading from verses 1 through 12 in chapter 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
And blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Everything happens for a reason. It is what it is. And tomorrow's another day. And what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Forgive and forget. And also, YOLO. We are inundated by phrases like this, little one-liners, fortune cookie wisdom that actually doesn't have a whole lot to say to us, right? If you really dig into any of those phrases, they're not really saying anything at all. And oftentimes, because we are inundated by wisdom like that, we approach our Bible looking for the same sorts of things, little one-liners, little fortune cookies that we can put in our pocket and carry with us the rest of the day, right? And the passage we just read Blessed are those, blessed are those. People often approach those as little individual fortune cookies. But that's not the point of this passage. In fact, the Bible is not that at all. It's not that sort of text. Instead, the Bible is one cohesive story telling about what God is doing in the world, how God is bringing redemption and restoration, life and flourishing from places that didn't seem like it could arrive. And so in order to understand these phrases in Matthew 5, in order to really get into the wisdom that they carry, we have to understand that bigger story because they are rooted in a larger picture. And in order to do that, we have to return to what happens before chapter 5. What happens before chapter 5? Chapter 4, baby. Yeah. (laughs) Troy knows his Bible. Actually, all of you could have answered that question. (laughs) Chapter 4 comes before chapter 5. Troy is on it today. Yes, deep theological statements. Four comes before five, you guys. If you take nothing else away today, you know. In chapter four of Matthew, we get a statement of Jesus uh, that actually pretty well summarizes, it's kind of the thesis for his whole ministry. And it's a phrase that Matthew routinely returns to in telling the story of Jesus. It's one that he sees as the major theme, the major purpose of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Jesus says these words in chapter four. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What? Right? Kingdom of heaven. That's not language that we really understand in our culture super well. So we have to get at what kingdom of heaven really means, because that seems to be the main through line of Jesus' ministry. In order to get that, we've got to remember this big story. At the start of things, God created a unified heaven and earth, where they worked in tandem together. God crafted all things to work in harmony. The Hebrew word for this is shalom. You might be familiar with that word. Peace and harmony characterized all things, and everything had its distinct purpose. And then humans were made to steward that creation, to bring new life and to care for the life that existed. And the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, tell us how humans didn't really want to do that very well. They said, okay, God, I get that you've given me this purpose. I get that you rule this stuff and that you have determined how it should function. But I think I might know a little bit better So I'm going to choose to rule on my terms. I'm going to choose to bring life on my terms. How I see life coming into the world is how I'm going to live. And the result of that, over and over and over in the scriptures, is destruction. It's death. The humans constantly bring about death and destruction when they try to rule over creation in ways that God didn't tell them to, in ways that God actually said to do the opposite. And then, in the scriptures, it's not just hopeless, it's not just death and destruction. We also learn that God, in the middle of that mess, is bringing life and flourishing. He promises it over and over and over to the very people who are rejecting him. 
he says, hey, I get that you guys want to do your own thing, but there's real life here. So I'm going to promise to someone named Abraham long ago, and I'm going to continue to promise through Abraham's family, and eventually I'm going to bless the whole world. Even though you guys continue to mess and mess and mess it up, I'm going to show up and I'm going to keep promising life. And so when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is near, it's hearkening back to this big story. Jesus is claiming that God's promises for bringing life and flourishing have arrived in him. This isn't just a one-off nice little phrase. He's rooting himself in the big cosmic story of God. He's the one who's going to heal all things, and he's quoting over and over again in this passage bits of that story. He's telling us that these are the puzzle pieces. If you put them together, you see that I'm the one who's bringing life to the world. It's sort of like when you retweet something. You get an original tweet, you really like it, so you retweet it, right? But in order to get the context, you got to go back to the original tweet. Jesus is retweeting this big story over and over and over again. He's pointing us to the big cosmic work that God is doing. And that's a reminder here in verses 3 and 10 in chapter 5. So we skip forward. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus gives us a frame for that kingdom. He says in verses 3 and 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that a repetition of phrase in, in verse 3 and 10 in the Greek language that's called an inclusio. The idea of an inclusio is that it provi- provides a frame, and every word that comes in between those statements fills in the picture. He's giving us kind of the thesis and the conclusion. If you guys write essays or papers, you might know what that looks like, right? You repeat the same phrase, and then everything in the middle comes back to that picture. It's sort of like puzzles. My wife loves her some puzzles, and she has taught me much about them. I despise puzzles, mostly because I'm terrible at them, uh, so I just don't do them. But Emily and her family love puzzles, and they've told me, their pro tip always, you start with the outside. You start with the straight edges, because those are the easiest to define. And then from that frame, you start to fill in the picture. Jesus, by saying, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is giving us the edges of the puzzle, and the rest of the statements are filling in the picture for us. So when we read this, we should think, well, what's the picture he's painting? What does the kingdom of heaven look like, right? Who fills up the kingdom of heaven? And over and over again, he's repeating this one word, blessed. We all know what that means, right? Hashtag blessed. We throw that word around all the time. I was listening to an award show. I think it was the Oscars in 2020. And like every person who I I, I know they weren't people of faith, they were talking about how blessed they were over and over again. I'm just blessed to receive this reward and I'm I'm blessed to know all these people. It's like, interesting. We just kind of throw this word out there, but I don't think we really dig into what it means. The way Jesus is using it here, it refers to an already existing state. It's not something you earn. It's something that God bestows upon you. You are blessed by God. And it means that God is with you and for you. That's what it's saying here. It's functionally Jesus telling us that these sorts of people are the people he is with. These sorts of people are the people he is for. His kingdom is made up of those sorts of people. And so if you're looking for Jesus and the kingdom of heaven, you look for these people, the people he describes. So who are these people? What are these phrases that he's talking about? And how can uh, the kingdom of heaven come in our midst when we know those sorts of people? The first one he mentions here is the poor in spirit, which is another phrase in our culture that we don't really use very often. You don't have somebody ask you how you're doing and respond like, I'm pretty poor in spirit. It's kind of silly. Kylie liked that joke. I got a good laugh out of Kylie. 
right? You, you, we don't really, that's not part of our vernacular in our culture. Um, but it's actually a really powerful phrase when you dig into what it means. I like how the New Living Translation brings it across into English. It says, those who are poor and realize their need for God. That opens up the meaning of that phrase a lot. And there's two parts to this. Commentators have gone back and forth on exactly what Jesus is meaning by those who realize their need. Uh, I actually think both meanings are in play in this passage. But uh, the first meaning is quite literally those who are economically poor, those who are in need, who are struggling. And that's because a lot of the audience that Jesus is preaching to here are day laborers, fishermen and carpenters and the like, people living paycheck to paycheck. And so those sorts of people is who he's talking about here. But he's also talking about those who really don't fit into the religious elite, those who are spiritually in need and who know their spiritual need, people who show up to the temple and realize, I'm not as holy as that person or that person or that person. And oftentimes those two groups overlapped in Jesus' day. So I actually think it makes sense that he's talking about both of those, both spiritual need, realizing our need for God, and also practical economic need. In other words... Jesus is telling us that God is near to folks who know they aren't good enough on their own or who are in dire straits in their lives. The primary qualification for the kingdom of heaven is the realization that we're not qualified, that we are in need of something, and that our situations maybe aren't the best. And that is a shocking reversal to a world that uses hashtag blessed. Because when people use that phrase and use that word in our world, they often mean how much they have, not how little they have, right? Look at all of my beautiful friends, hashtag blessed. Look at all of my money, look at my new job, hashtag blessed. That is precisely the opposite of what Jesus is doing here. He is saying when you don't have those things, God is near to you because you realize that you need him. God draws near to those who know their need. And so if you're in this room and you feel your faith isn't strong enough, this is good news. Jesus is near to you. And if you're in this room and you are in dire straits, good news, Jesus is near to you. If you're in this room and you're confident you're not good enough to approach God, good news, Jesus is near to you. So that's what he means by poor in spirit here. He keeps going through more phrases. He mentions that those who mourn are the people who are blessed, that God is near to. And both that statement and the statement of poor in spirit, those are retweets of the prophet Isaiah. He's pulling directly from what Isaiah said verses before. We actually read it to start our time together today. Isaiah said that God's arrival into the world was going to revive the poor in spirit and comfort those who mourn. Those are direct quotations. And so his audience, when they hear that, they're thinking back to, oh, I've heard those words before. Isaiah said those words. What was Isaiah talking about? What sorts of people was he talking about? Who were the poor in spirit and mourners to him? When Isaiah's day, the people of Israel who had gotten the promises of God that he was going to bring life and flourishing to the world, those people were waiting around for that to happen. And they felt that it was going to happen through their city, through the city of Jerusalem, that God was going to come again and reign in that city, and he would bring peace and justice to all things through that town. And then the town got destroyed. Jerusalem was broken down, and so they're walking around the rubble of their city without much hope. They're walking around wondering, is God even here? Has God abandoned his promises? And Isaiah tells them that in the middle of that rubble, God is still going to bring life. God is still going to come and restore the brokenness that you see around you. And so the poor in spirit and the mourners, they're people who look around their world and see violence and destruction. 
And they are people that struggle with the fact that God seems far away. Haven't we all felt that in our lives? In the last year alone, where there's a pandemic that just doesn't seem to end, where there's political hatred, where there's racial divides, where there's hurricanes and forest fires, it's as if creation, all of the world, is crying out for God to show up and restore. And so if you looked around your world and you've longed for God to show up in it, if you have mourned the fact that the world is broken, good news here. Jesus is with you and for you. Another word we often misunderstand in our culture is the next word that Jesus uses, the meek. We often equate the word meekness with weakness, right? If you're meek, you're weak. But that's not what he's saying here. This is, again, another callback to the Old Testament scriptures. He's quoting Psalm 37 here. And in Psalm 37, the meek are compared to the wicked, not uh, the strong. The meek are the opposite of the wicked. You want to be on the side of the meek because the wicked are people who use their advantage or social privilege to assert themselves over others. They're the people who dominate in the world, who uh, get control over the world. And those people, the psalmist says, are going to be washed away like grass in the wind. Those people will be swept away. And the meek, those people will inherit the land and the earth, he says. Jesus is telling us here that those who are not jockeying for power, those who take the lowest seat in the room, those who don't use others for their purposes but see others as their own people, those sorts of folks are the ones who are near to God. And that's a surprise to us. That's a reversal of how the world works, right? Because we live in a world where things like self-assertion and dominance and imposing your will is actually the thing that gets you what you want. It's not being meek, right? We look around and we want people to be self-assertive. We want people to dominate others. And so we vote for political leaders that will do that. We vote for leaders in our community that will impose our desires onto others. And then we bring this into our careers, right? We're told that you should go and get whatever it is that you're wanting, the advancement that you can have in your career. And we even let this creep into our churches a lot of times. We want the person standing at the front of the room to assert themselves, to dominate the sinners, right? To say what we want them to say, to really be on a platform. And Jesus is telling us that the kingdom of heaven looks different. That God is near to different sorts of people. The kingdom of heaven is full of people who don't impose their will. Who believe that they don't have to because they trust that the Lord is going to bring life. They trust that restoration doesn't have to come through their imposition of will, but it can come instead through the God who loves all people and all things. That promotes in us a meekness, a confidence in God to do what God said he's going to do. The words keep rolling for Jesus. He mentions that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are close to God. And the word for righteousness here, a lot of times we think of that as personal piety, but the word is the same word for justice in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. The same word that's used in each of those places can be kind of switched either way. So there's both a personal piety, right? People who are longing for their lives to look like God has designed them to look. But it's also people who long for communal flourishing. People who look around the world and say, this isn't the way that it should be. Who are hungering and thirsting for justice to come. And you notice the language he uses there. It's an image, right? Hunger and thirst. If you're hungering, that means you don't yet have the thing that you're hungering for, right? You aren't hungering for a burger that you're currently eating. You aren't 
thirsting for water that you're currently drinking, right? The idea there is that justice is not in our world, and these are the sorts of people who look at it and say, that's messed up, who mourn the fact that the world isn't as it should be. But they're not just cynical people either, because they're longing for those things to be resolved. They don't just look at a broken world and say, that's messed up, and then don't do anything about it. They're people who know what justice looks like and who long to bring it into the world. G.K. Chesterton said it really, really well. He had a rhetorical question uh, that he used. He said, can you hate the world enough to want to change it, and yet love it enough to see it worth changing? Can you hate the world enough to want to change it, and yet love it enough to see it worth changing? That's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice. The next phrase that Jesus uses here is one that all of us do really well, right? The merciful. We're really, really merciful in our culture. Cancel culture? I don't know about that, right? You tweet one wrong thing and you are gone from the public eye, right? You do one bad thing 15 years ago and it will get brought up when you run for election. There's no way that you can live an imperfect life publicly. It's impossible in our culture. You will get condemned for it. We are not a very merciful, merciful bunch in our culture. And this is a critical point that we as Christians need to remember. In a world that's not particularly merciful, getting closer to Christ means we become more gracious and merciful with others. It's often thought that the opposite is true, that Christians who are most faithful are the ones who are most rigorously legalistic, those who really bring the hammer down on those sinners. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He seems to be telling us that those who are closest to God are actually those who recognize their own need for mercy and therefore are willing to extend it to all people. People who are merciful are people who are near to God. And unfortunately, the world doesn't see Christians that way. They see Christians as hypocritical, as judgmental, as moralistic. And Jesus says that ultimately, Christians, if we're embodying these sorts of things, if we are these sorts of people, we're going to be the exact opposite. We're going to be people who bring mercy to the hurting, because that's where the kingdom of heaven is. The next phrase he uses is the pure in heart here. And the idea of the heart in Jesus' day, he didn't think of it necessarily anatomically, right? He wasn't literally picturing the chambers of the heart. He was picturing the innermost parts of our being. That was how that phrase was used at that time. So the idea of the heart in Jesus' time referred to the center of what you believe. That meant that the center of you was always trying to align itself with God was always trying to think, what does God want for me? What does God want for this person? What does God want for the world, and how can I align myself with that desire? That's what it means to be pure in heart. And he continues on to the peacemakers. And this is another one that we, I think, often miss in our culture. We think that peace means the absence of violence. We think that peace is just simply quietness, right? And so we will use whatever means we have to, sometimes violence, to end violence. But that's not the sort of peace that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about actual reconciliation of brokenness. Not an ending of those things, but actually a bringing together of enemies. People who don't just try to shut the other one up to create peace, but actually restore relationship with the other one. This is opposite, especially of what we believe, particularly in the United States. There's one of our presidents, Teddy Roosevelt, had a famous foreign policy phrase. Uh, you guys might know this. He said, speak softly and carry a big stick. That was Teddy Roosevelt's belief. He said, hey, speak softly, but if somebody comes at you, be ready to club them, right? 
Be ready to take him out because that's how peace will come. It will come when you impose violence onto the other and silence them. And that's the same sort of peace that the Roman Empire affirmed in Jesus' day. It was called the Peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. And they said, hey, look at what Rome has achieved. Look at all the peace we've created in the world. But they overlooked those who were oppressed in the middle of that peace. Jesus is saying here that real peace is one that brings reconciliation to all things, one that restores relationships. And so the peacemakers are people who are working in that way. And I have a pretty striking example for you here of how this might look for us today. Because we live in a world where, again, you want to oppose your will to create peace, violence upon other people. As an example, the United States every year spends roughly $695 billion on our military and defense budget. $695 billion on military and defense. That's functionally our big stick, right? We pour our money into that and say, look, this will create peace amidst our country and this will help create peace abroad because nobody will want to mess with $695 billion worth of guns and ammunition and violence, right? And so it keeps peace, but it silences others by doing it. By comparison, there's a recent Reuters study that found if we wanted to solve all of our clean water issues, sanitation, drinking water, and the like, for every human on planet Earth, it would cost roughly $150 billion. If you're doing the math, that's 21% of what we spend each year on our military and defense here in the US. Which means that if we wanted to create peace, if we wanted to bring restoration and reconciliation to the world and give to the needy, all we'd have to do is drop our military and defense budget by 4% over the next five years. And every human on planet Earth could have clean water. We could solve that problem. We could be a part of bringing peace and shalom, right? But it's really hard in a world that says only violence can accomplish peace. Jesus tells us here that the way of peace is one of restoration and reconciliation, not of intimidation. And so people who do that are the ones who God is near. And then finally, the last words he says here are maybe the hardest for us. He says that if we live this way, these sorts of people are going to be persecuted. That's hard for us to hear, right? Who would want to persecute someone like this, right? Well, they'd want to because they're undermining the status quo of the world. The world will look at them and say, no, that's crazy. Like, we have to have our military and defense budget. You can't cut that thing, right? That will look crazy to the world. You can't really bring about, that's, that's way too idealistic, right? And so the world will malign them. They'll shun them. They'll push them to the side. They murdered Jesus, y'all. Like, it happens. If you live this way, the world won't like it because it undermines how the world functions. It's a complete reversal of the world we live in. So those are the puzzle pieces. Jesus gave us the frame of the kingdom of heaven, and he gives us all of these statements to fill in the picture of the sorts of people that make up that kingdom. And there's two main parts to the picture that I want to make sure we, we grasp today. First, the kingdom is made up of the very people who we'd never expect. It's made up of the garbage that you didn't realize could actually be a beautiful painting. Right? It's made up of the thing that the world looks at and says, that's useless. Those sorts of people are the ones who make up the kingdom. People who come from the wrong side of town. People who mourn the brokenness of the world. People whose bodies don't work the way that they want them to. People who long for things to be better. People who don't have power or assert their power. People who long to resolve the conflicts of their family members. People who are ignored by the world. That's what the picture looks like. And so if you're in this room and you feel insignificant, if you feel like the trash in that shadow art, Jesus has good news for you. God is near to you. 
God is with you. But there's a second part to this picture. It's a person right at the center. Did you guys catch it? Remember, these quotes Jesus is using, they aren't random grab bag fortune cookie quotes. These are pulling from the big picture. And they're all pointing towards God, the one who has promised over and over and over to bring restoration and reconciliation to all things. So who's the one who deeply knows humanity's need for God? Who's the one who mourns the brokenness of the world? Who's the one who refuses to assert their authority but instead takes the lowest seat at the table, who washes the feet of the people who follow them? Who's the one who hungers and thirsts for justice? Who's the one who brings abundant mercy into the world? Who's the one who brings peace amidst enemies and was brutally killed for it? It's Jesus. That's what this story is telling us. That all of these things have happened in the person of Jesus Christ. And that we, when we give our lives to that person, we start to become these sorts of people. We get transformed and we help transform the world. Because we know that we're not good enough on our own. We've been doing this human project thing for a long, long time. Human history is one long story of humans being unable to fix the problems of the world. And Jesus arrives and says, if you trust me, I can lead you into the kingdom of heaven. If you give your life to me, if you really commit to this thing, you can find redemption. You can find restoration. You can find reconciliation. We're about to have a congregational meeting after the service today. And uh, we're going to discuss some organizational things, some big picture, bird's eye view things, uh, which are really important for us and I think really exciting for our church. I'm excited to share them with you guys. Uh, but I wanted to talk about this passage today, and I wanted to hear the words of Jesus because I wanted us to remember that the organization is not the point. The organization is actually the means to which we become this sort of community, the community that uh, embodies the kingdom of heaven, the community that goes to all of these sorts of people. That organizational stuff and the stuff that we're going to talk about, we think best leads us to become this sort of community, and that's why we're doing it. We have to remember that that's why we exist. That's why we meet in this space, you guys. That's what the women at Hope Women's Center are doing. They're loving the poor in spirit and those who mourn, those who are in need. We want to come alongside them in that work. We want to be a church that does that together. And we do it not because we're particularly great social workers. We do it because we trust that the person of Jesus brings life. And we want to be a part of whatever he's doing in the world. Jesus put the puzzle pieces together for us. He gave us the frame. He gave us the puzzle pieces. That's the picture we have. We get to live into that together. So let's all take our next step in that picture. Let's pray.